So where are we holding? If that right, if you're not thinking about what you're speaking, then you are not in your words. So we now have two ways, and they're layered on top of each other. Two ways of explaining the absolute insignificance of the spoken word. One is that in as much as you are referring to the faculty of speech, the spoken word is insignificant because it is effortless. You can speak words ad infinitum, right? So there's zero cost to the word. But the word still has a fulfillment, still achieves something after all. The purpose of faculty of speech is to have words that reach other people. But then when you go a step deeper and you compare the spoken word to thought, A, the spoken word is a word that's already in your thoughts at some point, right? You cannot say a word that's not part of your mental vocabulary. So in that sense, it's redundant. And on top of that, the word being, an, um, and the, what's called the middle garment, which is really about external to yourself, that others should understand you, um, doesn't really require any presence of yourself in, in the spoken word, right? As we all know, we can just speak and have our minds be somewhere else. And what brings life, what brings a sense of one's own being into their speech is the alignment of the thought with the speech. So in that sense, the word is, the word is devoid of significance. It's devoid of meaning. So the word is costless, right? It costs nothing. And then going deeper, the word is redundant and the word is empty, it is hollow. So we have now three different ways of seeing the nothing of the spoken word. And then we carry that over to God. Since God creates the creations with the spoken word, his spoken word, if his spoken word is nothing because it is, one, effortless, two, the spoken word, whatever the God's spoken word is redundant, it's just repetition of something that already exists on a higher level of divine revelation, And moreover, it is empty, it is hollow, it is devoid of any life. It receives its life from that higher level, so-called God's thought. Then the spoken word, which is the basis of creation, is utterly, truly insignificant. insignificant. And therefore it follows that the world that is created by such spoken words is less than insignificant, less than nothing, and thus doesn't compromise Hashem's aloneness. But we're not done. We have arguably what is one more level to go. Um, one could divide this into two, and I'm debating whether to do it, but we'll see what happens at how the, the learning progresses if we go into more nuance. Okay. We are at the left column near the bottom, not to mention. Not to mention what is compared with the essence and entity of the soul. In other words, now we're moving and we're comparing the um, spoken word not to the faculty of speech, not to thought, but to the soul itself. And so now what are we going to see here is that the spoken word compared to the soul itself is even more nothing. If we could have more nothing, right? These being its ten attributes mentioned above, Chachma, Bina, Das, known as Chabad, and so on. 
So when he speaks about the, the, the essence, the entity of the soul itself, he identifies this with the attributes of the soul. Now, that is going to be the first topic we're going to discuss, is why is it legitimate to treat the attributes of the soul as the essence of the soul? Right? That's what the text says. The essence and entity of the soul, these being its ten attributes. Right? Um, before we go into how that's, that, that makes sense, we have to understand why it's a question to begin with. So we're going to start with something simple. We have here this pitcher of water, Yes. Can someone please list at least five different attributes of this picture? It's clear. It is solid. It's about a foot tall. So we have height. We have its um, pigmentation. It's clear. Um, it has a lid that comes off. It's texture. It's bumpy. It's bumpy. Good. Okay. Now, if we had, let's take a few of these. If we had a picture that was opaque and colored um, mauve, right? That's a color, right? Mauve. Okay. Um, so if we had, if we had such a picture, would it be in any way less of a picture? No. No. Right. It's being a picture would be the same, right? So its color is not is is not an attribute which can be be. be um, understood as having anything to do with its essence. The essence of something is what the thing is in and of itself. Okay. Um, in Hebrew, what is the Hebrew word he uses for essence? Well, let's look. Right. Where is it? Yeah, no, I'm looking for it. So the word muhus in Hebrew is the word he uses for essence. The word muhus comes from the word ma. So if I were to you know, not use fancy philosophical English, say muhus is the whatness of the thing. What makes the thing be itself? Okay. And the atmos is it, it is the entity. So when I, for instance, just to be clear, right, um, this picture, when I talk about it, I'm talking about it, right? That's for argument's sake. Also a picture, right? But it is a different picture, right? So this is one entity. It is one etzem. It is one entity. That is another entity. This, but then they're both pictures. So in that sense, they're, they're, they're different entities of the same essence. Okay, we call that a species, by the way, where you have the same kind of thing, but multiple instantations of it. Anyway, so it's color. That does nothing to you. Know, if the, if the, the, this picture, if somehow we turned it more off, it would just be a picture, right? Um... What about, what were some of the other attributes? It's height. If, we, if this picture had been made taller or shorter than it is, would it still be just as much a picture? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean a picture that would be able to hold more water. Um, what about the fact that it has a lid, right? If a picture came without a lid, or was designed that you couldn't really put a lid effectively on it, would it still just as much be a picture? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now let's stop and ask yourselves, what's the difference between the lid and the other, let's, let's take it, the color, really doesn't really have any effect on it being a picture at all, right? The size, it doesn't change whether or not it's a picture, but it does change the amount of water it can hold, right? Now, whether it has a lid on it does affect the, its, how, its quality, right? Now, a picture with a lid on it has certain advantages or possibly disadvantages as a picture, right? So those do pertain to its essence, but at the end of the day, it is a picture regardless of those facts, right? Good. 
Um, that gets us, so we did color, size, that has a lid. Bumpy. What, what, bumpy. Texture, texture I think goes back with color. There's nothing unique there. What about solid? Is the fact that it's solid have anything to do with the fact that it's a picture? Yes. Could the, you have a picture that is not solid? Not really. Not really, okay. So now, would we say that the solidity of this plastic is part of the essence and entity of the picture? Okay. In what sense, yes. The essence is like what it is to be a pitcher. And yeah, it, yes, because if it was soft, it wouldn't be holding water. Mm -hmm. But in another sense, that's not like a pitcher. Right. Okay. So, so, so let's start with there, right? We have this, we have this, every pitcher must be made of a solid material, but not every solid material is a pitcher. Right? So I would say that solidity is a condition necessary to be a picture in actuality, but it has nothing to do with what it is to be a picture per se, right? So that maybe has a maybe deeper connection to the essence of being a picture than say, having a, a lid, which affect, you know, some pictures do and some pictures don't, it affects the quality of being a picture. But so it's essential in the sense of necessity, but it is not essential in terms of like what it is to be the thing. Right, so all these, so what, what is the essence of a picture? Okay. More particularly, this holds and pours water, but it's a cup. Right, it is, it is, right. So, no, I, I think if we, if we think of this, right? In other words, there are many containers for water. A cup is the container to hold water in order to drink from in a civilized manner. We will leave drinking from bottles for discussion another time, right? Um, a pitcher, right, is the container for bringing water to the people to then distribute it to the cups. It's more communal. Right? So you have wherever the water is, say, stored, right? And you have where the people are. In order to bring the water to where the people are so that it can be distributed to the people's cups, right, you need a kind of container that, that serves that function. That's what makes a pitcher a pitcher, right? Okay, for our purposes, good. And obviously that needs to have certain qualities, right? In order for that to happen, it needs to be solid. It has to be within a certain size range. It has to be a material that you can actually relatively easily move around, right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, good. So is it clear that the attributes of a thing are not necessarily the same thing as its essence, as its being an entity, right? Okay. So now, let's talk about the soul, okay? What is the essence of the soul? Now, we do have multiple souls. We have a godly soul, which we're not gonna talk about today. We have an animal soul, which we can talk about today. We can subdivide that into an animal and rational soul, which we may talk about today. Okay, but I wanna just talk about souls as things that are related, that human beings have, okay? No godly soul for this discussion. So what is a soul? What is the essence of a soul? So the mahus, the essence, the what it is, is what makes the soul a soul? What makes the soul be what the thing that it is? So the simple way of asking yourself the question is, well, the picture is not a soul, right? Why is the picture not a soul and the soul is a soul? What, do they, what differentiates the two such that one is a soul and the other one is not a soul? What does the soul have that the picture doesn't? Yeah? Like a life spark, right? There's some kind of vitality, 
right? Now, let's go further. Is the soul of a person the same as the soul of a monkey? The soul of a dog? No, okay, so then we need something that differentiates the soul of a person, right? Makes, okay, so here you have two opinions, broadly speaking, in Jewish um, philosophy, thought, metaphysics, ethics, etc., etc. There are two basic streams of thought. I will introduce both of them, um, and then we'll talk about what Hasidus has to say. Um, and we'll give names to each of the opinions. One is the view of the Rambam, Maimonides. The Rambam's view is that what makes a soul a soul of a person, and we're going to just talk about people right now in general, we're not going to subdivide different souls, is the, that a soul is a living life, is a, is a kind of a living entity, it's a life force, okay? Um, and it is rational. Animals are not rational, and people are. are. So if I see a living life force, a spark, however you want to put it, right? I see some kind of vitality that exhibits rationality, then that is a human soul. If I see vitality does not exhibit rationality, then it is not a human soul. Good? Now, I do not want to go too deeply into all the nuances. I want to make this a little bit simple. Does this mean that children are not human? They're not rational. But you're teaching them to be... That doesn't matter. They have the capacity to... Can you teach an animal to be rational? But the the, the thing is like this. If If you are able to impart a quality onto something, then that quality is not part of its essence. Because that means that... I didn't say anything about right. I said rational. But they don't, they always want to be rational. They just don't know what is rational. What's they don't always want to be rational. But the same thing with people with intellectual... Deeply inside, they do. Deeply inside. What does that mean, deeply inside? There's essence of the soul. So, okay. So what you're saying is like this. When I have, a, I have an infant son. You're saying, my infant son exhibits no rationality whatsoever. But I believe deep down inside he's rational. Yes? Yes? I mean, yeah. Yeah? Right, good, exactly. I'm confused because when you talk about Yahida, like it is irrational. I'm so aware of that. I'm aware of that. I, I, I'm a big believer. I'm a big believer in um, emulating God. And God often, um, you know, says different things in different contexts. And, um, you know, there's no, there's, and, 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 and does not expect that you should try and put it all together at once. He expects you to learn each thing on its own terms and then ultimately put it all together. So that was a right, like, that was a right yeah, answer. Now, we could be fancy about it, right? right? By the way, there's an important learning technique. If someone um, expresses skepticism about what you're saying and uses mocking tones of voice, that is not a reason to retract your position. In fact, that is something that a teacher should occasionally do when someone has the right answer. Because part of learning and understanding means the ability to sense within yourself what is, your say, is what you're saying sensible, reasonable, and justified not using someone else's approval as the sign of whether it's right or wrong. Okay. I do this to my Gemara students often. <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah, somehow deep. Now we can say, okay, well, what does it mean it's deep inside? Okay, so we can talk about it. For instance, there is a notion of potential. Potential means that something does not lacking a quality, but that quality is not actual and not been actualized yet. Um, for instance, if we were to take, for instance, the idea that 
uh, if someone were to tell you I, I would can make a sword out of metal, you'd say, oh, that's reasonable, right? Because the, the, the sharp edge required for a sword is something that metal has the potential for, right? It's not that it's currently sharp, but the sharpness is something that is within its capacity to be. It just has to be actualized, right? But if someone said I were to make a sword out of water, you'd be like, well, you can't really do that. Unless you're talking about like ice or whatever, then it would break. It doesn't have... Make sense? So we can then be very deep and complicated, but we'd say is that living energy, that life force, that vitality that is present in the infant has a in inherent rationality, which maybe starts off in kind of a potential state and it needs to be cultivated and actualized. And that's the difference between, you're not giving them rationality, what are you doing? You're, 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 you're bringing the rationality out. In fact, in Hebrew, when we want to talk about actualizing, they usually use the term to bring something out. Lahoitzi, um, to take out, from the potential, to actual. Right? And this is like, when, for instance, if you've ever mentored somebody, right? You have to see things in them that are not at yet actualized. But the idea is you're not, you're not projecting them onto them. You're supposed to be able to somehow set, see them in them, right? Or to quote the, the famous Hasidic educator, Michelangelo, he, you know, David was in the statue the whole time, right? You just had to like bring him out, <laughs> right? Or there the whole time. So that's, that's one way of looking at it. Now, what that would mean though is, right, that all, even though we would say that in some sense all people are people, but in some sense all people are not equally people, right? Because all people are people in some kind of essential. You ever, you ever like, um, have your parents come home from parent-teacher conferences and they look disappointed? You say, what happened? They said, your teacher says you have a lot of potential. Right, because potential means it's, it's not actualized, right? Every human being is essentially rational in some kind of potential state, in some, as you put it, deep, deep down. But actually, very few people are like actually human because very few people actually live up to what it is to be rational. Um, and, and the Rambam, and that's a bullet you, you have to kind of bite or price you have to pay if you take that position. The Rambam does take that position. Many Jewish thinkers take that position is that to be human is both something that is essential but also something that one has to attain. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Now, it is also true that the Ramam understands that morality is a facet of rationality. In other words, to be immoral is to show a lacking of rationality. And I don't want to go into that right now. What? Immoral okay. is showing a lacking of rationality. Whatever rationality is. That makes sense. I, I'm sure it makes sense. I'm not going to go into it, but I, I wanted to say that because you brought up right and wrong. Um, also... There, there is another view that it has to do with language, that a human being is, 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 is essentially linguistic. We have language. And again, there you'd have the same thing, right? My newborn, he's not newborn, he's a few months old already, but right, he does not actually have the ability to use language, right? He doesn't have to speak a language, doesn't understand any language, right? But we'd say the same thing, right? That there is, the, the, the language is something that is there within him and essentially, but it's in a state of potential and needs to be actualized. And that's brought out through being in an environment of language users. Um, and there's also the idea that those two things are actually related, right? That, that language and rationality have a, are, are, are deeply tied to each other. So, but that's one train of thought, okay? Um, what this train of thought actually means is that you can judge people. People who are less rational are failures at being human. Is it always their fault? No. no. Now, this is not failing at being human. Why? Because it's not human, right? In other words, it is, it, is, it is wrong to judge it 
how good of a job it is at being rational or speaking or making moral judgments because it's a pitcher of water, right? So it, it, it's, it, you know, if it's leaking, then we can judge it as a failure. Okay? This is a notion called essentialism, which means that you are essentially something, but, but whether you're actually that thing, right, is up for um, debate. It's something you have to work on, and therefore you can be measured to be a success or a failure. That's one idea of what it is to be human. Does this make sense? Yeah. Okay. Does someone want to um, give me some, some uncomfortable consequences of thinking about people like this? Just so we have clear. Most of us are failing to be human. Or we're, 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 I don't know, we're totally failing, but we're, we're certainly struggling. Um, the Raman does make a comment that most people are you know, kind of like, like monkeys in the physical form of humans because they're failing to like really live up to rationality. Um, but let's take this a little bit further. That's people, some people are subhuman. Well, you're right. In other words, some people like fail to, fail to live up to any kind of humanity, right? Now, you, have, you can still grant them humanity under the fact that, that it's, it's a failure to actualize rather than being an essential lacking. In other words, that a newborn infant or a, or a mentally capacitated person or a person in a coma is still afforded the dignity of human, uh, should be still afforded the dignity of, of a human life because it's, it's something that is, you know, um, broken rather than saying like a rock or a dog, which is lacking in that. Um, but it does mean now, like there's like a strong case to like, once you have that judgment thing, to come and impose upon people that they have to be a certain way because deep down they really are that way. Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Everyone's good with this idea? Do you have to get married? I'm not asking you a physical question. I'm aware that there's no physical force in the universe that forces you to get married the way like, the rocks fall to the ground because of gravity. I'm asking you, as, a, as there an ethical imperative such that if you fail to get married, either a moral tragedy has occurred that, to you or you are guilty of a moral failure, one of the two. That's what I'm asking. Why? Why are you required to get married? You're not. I'm asking if you're, some of you are saying yes. I'm asking. I mean, isn't yeah. the mitzvah to men and I didn't ask about the mitzvah to procreate. But like that's the purpose, part of the purpose of marriage, right? It is a part of a purpose and of marriage. Like, and just the, the love or like the relationship in itself isn't obligatory? It is actually, but. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we also talked about how marriage is this glue for society. Okay, so you're making a pragmatic thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, Why do we need it? Like, you don't have to. Do have you... Hmm, does anyone know their Genesis chapter 2? Not like off the top of your head. I'm sure you know this verse. Not good for man to be alone. Mm-hmm. Continue the verse. A help against you. A help against you. Whatever that means. Okay. Now, so... What is a man, based on that verse? What is the essential characteristic of a man? Alone. <laughs> not entirely. You're not entirely. What? A being who is a being who is alone is part of it, right? It, a being who is not whole. Right. It's not whole in their aloneness. Right. That, that, that's a very like 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 a picture has a specific. Your essential identity is what it is. What is a man in that verse? Not whole. A being, right? But I, I want to. But I no, see, not whole is not. I'm actually, I'm actually specifically not saying not whole. You keep saying not whole. 
Because you want to make it gender neutral, and it's not. What do you mean? You'll see what I'm saying in a second. A man is a being who is alone. But, now what does alone mean? What does it mean to be alone? We've discussed this, right? Without anyone else, right? There's a kind of a a fundamental solitariness of being, right? Mm -hmm. At their core. And yet... That solitariness is something which is a positive feature of their being or a negative feature of their being, right? Right. If I take, um, if I take a, um, a, if I take, um, let's say, a bottle, right? And I can say, okay, well, the bottle, right? You know. Part of a bottle is supposed to be able to transport liquid, right? Now, there's a problem is because the bottom has a hole at the top, right? So the liquid is going to fall out, right? So the bottle is missing something. It's missing a cap, right? And these two parts make a coolly functional bottle. But I want the cap to be detached because I want the bottle to pour things out, right? Um, you could have two halves of a whole, but it's not saying that. It's saying there's a being which is kind of whole within himself, and that wholeness is good or bad? Bad. bad. Now, let's contrast that. What does the verse say about the woman? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, these are not the same, right? So God, right, so now if we say, if we take this idea of like essentialism, we take this seriously, what are we saying about what it is to be man and what it is to be woman? To be a man is to be whole within yourself and that's problematic, right? And so you need someone else and to be a woman would be to be whole within yourself, but that wholeness comes about in actualization through through remedying the problem of the man. So now, if as a man you fail to get married, what are you failing to be? Whole. You're failing to be what a man is, right? A man, you, you're, right? you are failing to, to either acknowledge, address, deal, feel with the, it is not good to be alone, which is the essential part of being a man. And if you're a woman and you fail to get married, then what's, what's the problem? You're not realizing. You're also not essential. You're, right? So now, right? Sometimes tragedies happen to people. It's not their fault, right? And we don't judge them for that. Although this still has an element of judgment. We're saying that's not as good as the other thing, right? But how do you get this from the Rambam? No, I'm just saying the, that the Rambam takes the idea of what's the notion of essential of human. But if you take this idea and you apply it to saying that male and female, make those essential. What do you, if you make those essential, then what, then what could you say? You could say that a man that grows up and decides that he doesn't need to get married is failing to be and a, he, now, if we say that fail, deciding to fail to be what you want, to, what you truly are, is a sign of irrationality, he's not only failing to be a man, he's also failing to be. That's right. Does that mean essentially, deep down, he's not a human, not a man? No. no. And he said, "Python to women." Right? Do you see, like, if that's the way you think about things, you, you it structures everything very differently. Yes. Right. A lot of things don't get regulate, relegated now to personal choice. Like choices are not as morally neutral as we would think if you take this idea seriously, right? Okay, let's go one step further. What? Moral choices are never neutral. Like, no, I said the other one. Choices are not as morally neutral as we would like to think. In other words, the scope of what is moral and immoral in our choices grows. So deciding to get married is not no longer a morally neutral choice. No, you say this. Not getting, if you decide not to get married, you're making an immoral choice. You say, well, that's what makes you feel good. Well, I guess you're really a deeply immoral person if doing immoral things makes you feel good. That's what that would mean. Right? If I, like, if I steal, and I'm like, I'm stealing, like, that's immoral. But I like it. 
I don't think anything's wrong with it. Well, I guess that makes you really immoral. So is that a difference between you have to and you should? Yes, this means that the scope... Right. Well, no, I, 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 I don't want to... Oh. Let's group them together. Okay. So, so now let's go one step further. Okay. Um, what is it to be a father? Is that essential? If we say there's something essential about being a father, then what does that mean? Then we can ask, well, what is that? And we can say, well, deep down every father is a father, but not every time do they actualize being a father, right? And so some people can fail at being fathers. So if someone like has a kid and decides, you know, it's like, it's really difficult for me to like give them a sense of right and wrong in life. And like, it, it really cramps my like style and I want to run off to the Bahamas and like, you know, do artwork or something. And that's what makes me feel good. <laughs> well, if we think there's something essential in being a father, right, then that person is making an immoral choice. And if they see nothing wrong with it, they're also like destroying their humanity, right? On the other hand, if we don't think there's anything essential being fathers, like doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't float his boat, doesn't speak to him. Same thing with mother, same thing with child. Right? You, you, now, so if someone comes along and tells you, you have to, in the sense of, again, not physically necessitated, but are morally obligated to do something, and you have this notion of like, there is something concrete that essentially makes you who you are, then the question of who said so is, is usually a meaningless question. It's like, you have to be rational. Why? Because you're a human. And if you fail to be rational, you're failing at being human. You have to get married. Why? Because you're either male or female. There's two different perspectives on what marriage is doing. But okay, if you're a father and you think that's essential, you're a mother, well, then you have to do certain things and you have to feel certain ways. And if you don't, you're failing at being yourself. And that's it. Judaism agree with essentialism? Because it's usually what this is what God says. One second, one second, one second, one second, one second. Okay, now. The Rambam clearly thinks that Judaism agrees with essentialism. We can debate, is everything essential, right? You know, like, you know, maybe certain things aren't really essential, right? Maybe you can, like, you know, if you're, if, if you're a janitor, like, do you have to be a janitor for the rest of your life? I mean, one of the things in the ancient world they used to do is, like, if your father was a farmer, then you have to be a farmer. Now, can you explain to me the logic why that would make sense? Right, in other words... Being a farmer is something essential in your being. So then, like, you know, it would be something deeply immoral if you were to stop being a farmer. Now, or we could say, no, being a farmer is like because you happen to learn how to be a farmer and be pragmatically good, but, you know, maybe it's not, there's nothing essentially wrong with you switching professions, right? Different sides. Like eh, right, you could have, right. But, so, but it, clearly there are some things which are essential, right? So, human on the one end, and I would say, Halacha would say that, for instance, being a farmer is clearly not, and we could, you know, debate things. That's one way of looking at things. It, knows it's a, it really, it's saying there are certain attributes which are really, truly essential, okay? And therefore, you know, you can fail to live up to those things. Okay. Yeah? So a man being alone, would that be like the picture being a solid or the picture being a serving? No, it's part of this. In this view, in this view, a man who does not feel like a deep inner aloneness is failing to be a man. Okay, so it's like That's the so farthest weird. of the essence that you can. Yeah, well, yeah. In this view, whether Judaism, like, uh, uh, these are things that are discussed, like, by Jewish thinkers and philosophers and whatever. Um, okay. What's the other view? Language? The other view, no, no, so that's one view. And the other view would be the view of the morale of Prague. What do you love about him? 
what about him is great. I think he was the Hasidus before the Hasidus. Okay, there's, there's truth to that. The morale says, the morale says that there is nothing that makes your soul human. If there is something that makes you human, then you're not human. I'm, I'm, I'm elaborating what he says. He's right, right, very cryptically. He throws out this word a lot in Hebrew called nivda, which means removed. Basically, it's like this. If you can figure out what are your essential attributes that make you what you are, it's that that causes you to lose your humanity. The definition of self is the loss of humanity. So he actually says a very interesting thing about Pesach. Matzah is the bread of our freedom, yes? Everyone's eating matzah? What is matzah? It's flour and water. With what else? As is, right? I mean, it's baked because that's how you have bread, right? But it's, it's, if you strip everything away from bread and leave bread at just the bare bones, what do you have? Flour and water that's baked, right? And that's what matzah is, right? And he says, that's freedom. What's freedom? Freedom is, I am not defined by any attribute. There is nothing you can concretely say that I have to be. So let's take this seriously, right? If we take this idea very seriously uh, and we take it just on its own terms and we just talk about this idea, what would that mean? Um, if I decide I don't want to get married and you come and tell me, well, I have to get married. If I don't get married, I'm not being true to myself. They'd say, well, then that would mean that myself is quite limited. Myself is quite constrained. Well, that's a lot. Then, 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 I'm not, then you're, you're, treating me like a, like, you're treating me like some kind of limited object. And I'm not a limited object. I'm a person. I have an inner freedom, an inner transcendence. And if I decide that marriage is not for me, then marriage is not for me. But that's also defining yourself. It is. It's defined. It's the, what, but it, 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 it's defining yourself by what? Not by not, right. By that nothing define, nothing, nothing defines me. Nothing can be predicated upon me that this thing, this definitive attribute is what makes me me. In other words, it is the freedom to have attributes and to act at will that makes me me, not any specific quality that makes a person a person. What? Yeah, that's because you're. That's because that's because you live in a modern era. Yeah, that right? seems very. That's more like. So, what do you believe about marriage? One second. One second. One second. I want you guys to appreciate these are serious issues before we see what Chassidus says about this. What's that? Yeah. Standing like outside of this person, meaning like right. nothing right. has value because it's intrinsically not yours. Right, mm-hmm. right. Like this would mean that like me discussing Judaism with a non-Jew is like pointless because like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's only meaningful to me. Or even with another Jew, it doesn't make sense. Well, that would depend on the degree to which we are distinct entities, which is a separate discussion. Right, which is a separate no, but that's a separate discussion. In other words, there's a separate question whether whether I whether we're two different beings or one different. I don't like, that's another issue. Um, but so this is often known as an idea called existentialism, which is I am, and now I get to decide what kind of thing I am. Now, that 
I mean, I want you to, like, I, what I want you to see is you take either of these ideas really, really to the extreme, they're pretty bad, right? But does it mean there's no truth to either of these ideas? No. Okay. Um, let's go a little bit more in, in, into this idea. Um, if I decide, now here's the thing, there is a, there is, there is a trick to this, uh, which is that you, it has to be authentic. You know, if you lie to yourself, this doesn't work. But I decide that it is really important for me um, to live a particular lifestyle. In this view, that can't be judged as right or wrong as long as what can be judged is how sincere I am about it. Right? If, I'm, if I say it's really important to me, but I don't actually live up to that, well, then I'm lying to myself. Right? So it's not completely morally neutral. Right? Whereas in the first view, like, what well, I mean, if that's not in line with my essence, then it's... Then it's not me, and then, then it's wrong. Okay? Now, let's throw God into it. Okay? Which of these views is more God-friendly? The first one. The first one. Why is the first one more God-friendly? Because God could decide what, your, what makes Right. Now, there's a standard understanding um, in, in, in Jewish thought. And I'm not going to say that necessarily all Jewish thought agrees with this entirely and all Jewish thought necessarily um, agrees with this at all. But there's an idea in Jewish thought that much of the so-called mitzvahs of the Torah are God just simply letting us know what needs to happen in order for us to be true to our essence. You're talking about God in relation to us? Or yeah, God yeah. God, no, God in relation to us. So then it says, when the Torah says that we have to get married, right, it's not God coming along with his authority to boss us around. He's saying, look, look, I created you, and so like you have this kind of inner essence of you know either being male or female, and therefore you are will always fail at being yourself until you get married. And, and therefore God is informing us of the obligation that stems from our essence, which he defined. So it's not, like, it's not like me coming along and bossing you around. It's like, who, are you, who am I to boss you around? Right? And so it's not like, so, so, and this is a very deep idea and it's a very important idea because if you don't have this idea, then it, what it sounds like is that when God comes along and tells you you can't do something, it's like, well, I have my life and I have my existence and all of a sudden God is coming around and exerting authority over me and then threatening me to, if I don't listen to him. And that sounds like he's being a bully, right? Someone comes over and says, you have to do what I say. And if you don't, I'll, I'll, I'll mess things up for you. That sounds like a bully, right? But if someone comes along and says, um, you know, like, you really need to do this because, like, otherwise you will remain eternally unfulfilled and unhappy and your life will have been a waste because I can see the, deeper into the essence of who you are as a person or whatever, right? They're not being a bully. I mean, that might be wrong, but they're not being a bully. What covenant means is also a matter of discussion. I, I, I want to leave covenant out. And the reason I want to leave covenant is because there's mitzvahs to Gentiles and they don't have a covenant. God has a covenant not to destroy the world, but he doesn't have a covenant with the Gentiles. And there are divine commandments to Gentiles, so you still have to address this issue. Okay? Conversely, um, there is something profound and deep if I freely choose 
to value and make it important to be connected. Sorry, I thought this was on silent. To be connected with someone else and they freely choose to be connected to me, right? There's something profound, right? In other words, in a certain sense, you know, when, when the spiders, um, you know, make spider webs and produce spider eggs, right? They're just being spiders, right? And so if people are rational and moral, they're just being people. But if you have this other view, right, that nothing defines me and I freely choose to um, live a life of connection, of value in a particular way, that, that has a kind of deep meaning to it, right? So there's this tension, these two different ideas, okay? Um, and there's whole different views in Jewish theology and Jewish philosophy and Jewish ethics that stem from these issues. And as Shlomo Melch says, as King Solomon says, nothing new under the sun. And so, you know, if you kind of go back to kind of the more age of antiquity and the medieval era, then gen the prevailing Gentile view was much more about an essentialism of everything. And as you moved into modernity, how do you free, you know, yourselves from the shackles of God having, of ha telling you what to do? You do whatever you want. And you make a whole ideology around that, like, you know, consent and personal choice is the ultimate sacred good because there is nothing that defines me as me other than that. Okay. See how these go in different directions? Okay. So what does Chassidus say? Which one is right? Both. both. Oh, I was going to ask if they're like mutually exclusive. No. Chassidus <laughs> takes the view that they are both correct. There are different ways of understanding this. I will try to make it simple um, and meaningful rather than technical and complicated. We could, and there is a value in technical and complicated, but for our purposes, because I, I want you to get a feel for it, I'm, I'm much rather simple and meaningful. If I decide, if I decide to do something and I really make a decision, then I should do it, right? I mean, I don't mean should like ethically do it. I mean, it, it should happen. And if it's not happening, either it's because something power greater than myself is stopping me or my decision wasn't as sincere, wasn't as authentic as I, I led myself to believe, right? That makes sense? Yes. Okay. What if I decide to treat someone nicely? Then I will. Do that. What if I decide to care about somebody? Now, what's the difference between caring and treating someone nicely? Right. One is one changes how I affect them. The other one changes how I experience them. Right? Those are not the same thing. Make sense? If I choose to care, if I decide to care about somebody, I now experience them in my life differently. If I choose to be nice to them, I just do things that affect them differently. Okay. If a person really is, you know, that free, can a person decide to care? Now, what happens if you decide to care? Do you really care? Good. Now, if you decide to care, but you only care a little bit, how strong was your decision to care? What if you decide to care really, really, really profoundly? Yeah. Could you decide to care so much that you become defined by that care, defined by that concern? After all, you're free to decide whatever you want about yourself, right? 
So Chassidus says like this. It is true on some fundamental level what the morale says, is that we're not defined by anything. And that the attributes of our soul are really the tools, the really techniques, they're the, the, the methods and the abilities the soul has to get things done. However, the soul chooses to have these qualities in such a way that they reshape and redefine the soul. In other words, the soul decides to have an, a concrete essence, a concrete um, defining characteristics about it. Wait, does the soul choose or does God choose? The soul chooses. I know, it's profound, right? The soul chooses, the soul chooses to care. So it's like this, yeah? My, my, my son, let's go back to my son, right? Is my son essentially rational and it just isn't actualized yet? Or is my son essentially free and can decide to be rational at some later point if he wants to? And it's really not up to me to impose that rationality on him because he should be free to decide for himself. And what does Chassidus say? Chassidus says, yes. He is essentially rational because his soul has chosen to be so. But that rationality has not been actualized. And in its actualization, for it to be fully actualized, there will need to become the awareness that the rationality was not imposed upon him by his creator, but is freely chosen from within. So you have a blending of these ideas, which means depending on context, sometimes we will treat the attributes of the soul as the soul itself. And some contexts, when we're discussing it, we will treat them as arbitrary characteristics that can be altered, changed, chosen, etc. So that's what makes one of the things that makes Chassidus very tricky, right? If I say the essence of the soul, according to Chassidus, you need context. Is the essence of the soul rational? No. Yeah, it's because it chose to. And, but if it chose to truly be rational, then is it essentially rational? No. Yes. It depends how I'm using the words. It depends how the context which I'm talking about. What? Well, this is actually based on the Hasidic idea that the human soul is modeled after God. Mm-hmm. And God, we've, we've spoken about spheres before. Our spheres have, def- our spheres have kind of a defined characteristics to them. Mm-hmm. After all, they're 10 distinct things. Does God have anything defined thing that makes him God? No. Does God choose to be defined by these 10 attributes and how he relates to not just what he does, how he perceives and interacts and experiences, so to speak, reality. So the idea is that these two things, the way God relates to the spheres becomes the way we relate, our souls relate to the attributes. And so depending on context, sometimes we talk about how the kind of the morale emphasis that there's a kind of transcendence, a kind of willfulness, a kind of essential... Um, freedom about everything on the one hand. And on the other hand, the soul really does have you know, a definition to it. And it has to live up to that. And if it fails to do that, it fails to live up to something. And it's, and it's bad. And those are both true. And this is why you'll find sometimes it says, you have to do Torah and mitzvahs and you have to be a good person because that's being true to yourself, right? And then times it'll say like, like, like everything comes from, it has to come from your own will and you have to want to do it and it can't be for anybody else even because God commanded you and like, there's a blending of these ideas, okay? 
if all you had is this part of Chassidus, you would think that we would think that ultimately Chassidus sides with that kind of essentialist point of view. And that's clearly not true. There's plenty of places in Chassidus where it seems to imply the exact opposite, and there's a blending. The technicalities, this is what I said, the technicalities of how that works and how it gets very complicated and sophisticated to make it, I'm not talking about. So what is a person who's fully actualized? Someone who is, let's say, rational. And senses that that rationality is not something that was imprinted upon them by their maker, but something that they chose. That, that, that they choose freely. Which is a weird kind of state. Is it choose or chose? I'm not going into that right now. What? I'm not, I understand the question. I'm not going into it right now. I, I, I'm not going to any technical questions. I want you to get a feel for this. In other words, does it feel like, in other words, it simultaneously feels like you could not be irrational, but nothing is making you be rational. This is Chassidus' understanding of what it is to be human because humans are built in the image of God. And this is what it is to be God in relationship to the world. Our chapter of Tanya, though, is, only, is focusing on one side of this, which is that the soul is its attributes. And the attributes are, he mentions, Chachma, Bina, Das, etc. So now we're going to compare the spoken word to the attributes? That's right. And we're going to treat that as if it's the soul itself. And so, and we're going to ask, well, look, why are we only going this far? And we'll, we'll talk about it, right? There's a reason why the text doesn't really go further and say, well, what about the kind of the soul as it transcends the attributes, which is also a valid perspective in Chassidus. Okay. But I, like, I want you to think, of, like, for instance, if you feel like, going back to like, getting married, if you, feel like, if you feel like getting married is like a personal choice, then from the Hasidic perspective, there's something off. But if on the other hand, you feel like you can't help but getting married the way like a, a, a dog can't help but like chase a fire truck or something like that, because just like kind of an embedded nature within you as a woman or as a man, also there's also something off about you. Although the second thing is a more mature problem than the first thing. Okay. Um, it, in other words, it adds a much greater depth to the notion of personal freedom and personal obligation. It also kind of answers the idea of like free choice while Hashem also knows everything. It does, but we're not going to go into that right now. It's wild. Yes. Right, so with the example of marriage, if like someone felt like they had to get married to the essential their being, but they recognize that they chose that and it wasn't imposed on them, yeah, but it's not like you can say it in a classroom where you tell it to yourself in your like internal mental dialogue. It's that you actually experience that way. You would experience simultaneously, it's impossible for me to not be married, but nothing is making me have to get married. That's what it would feel like. Yeah. Or you would say like, or you're saying like, like nothing is making me be moral, but I cannot be immoral. And if you apply that to Judaism, nothing is making me be very religious. But I, but I cannot violate my religion. That's what they, if you feel that way, then you're like a really, really, really deep closet. Okay. It's like a paradox. I don't know if it's no, a, but that's, is, that, is that really sincere when you say, it's, well, maybe it's for... Like, when you say, it's for yeah, sure, yeah, it's for like, sure and sincere when you say it. No, no, no. Maybe like when you're thinking to yourself, when your thought process is like, but... For instance, um, like, like, would I, like, 
if I don't want to go through this procedure, if I'm not satisfied with what Allah tells me to do or whatever, like if I'm not, like I'm saying, but I couldn't picture myself doing it otherwise. Like, like meaning like, what's the alternative that I have? Okay, I don't I, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something. I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to reject the premise of the question. There is a, a, an idea that somehow you can become fully actualized, fully in touch with yourself by doing some kind of like introspective process. And one of the key teachings of Hasidus, it's not really here, but this is a key teaching of Hasidus, it's in time and other places, is that you cannot achieve this by looking inward. In other words, you have to, it is true you have to have a proper understanding of this for it to be completely integrated into your psyche and settled. But ultimately this is something that this is, these are things that have to be elicited by how you actually live rather than withdrawing from life and kind of having a, you know, an inner self-exploration type of thing. To put this very simply, you have to actually live as a Jew properly under the right kinds of pressures having a proper understanding of what it is to be a Jew, and then this kind of sense will emerge. But if you go looking for it in yourself, you will never find it. Okay? It's like trying to see in the back of your head. It doesn't matter how much time you keep turning around. You're always seeing what's in front of you. You never see what's behind you. No matter how much you keep looking for this within yourself, you won't find it. It has to emerge from how you actually live. How first the choices you make, the pressures and costs those choices carry, and how you conceptualize what's going on and the, those things, and that's part of the like the whole art and lifestyle of Chassidus. But so like once you realize that, then, then the answer to your question is: no matter what kind of thinking you're doing to try and get to yourself to that place, it's obviously going to be insincere. It's obviously going to be fake. It's going to be telling yourself some kind of a story. Um, and this is alluded to in the Mishnah when it says um, that if there's no das, there's no bina. That if you don't know things from experience, you don't really truly understand them. So you have to kind of have first of kind of that raw experience. Um, in a certain sense, this is why like people who go through like a Balchuv experience are set up to have a, a, a deeper appreciation of Chassidus than someone who was raised from it from an early age. Because they're, they tend to have already experienced on some level some aspects of these types of things. Maybe not fully, maybe not fully integrated, but, you know, they've tasted it. Whereas, you know, the person who's gone through the religious system maybe has never had anything like this in their actual conscious experience. So it's all words and concepts, which hopefully they absorb and retain for when those experiences do emerge in life, they have some way of framing them and understanding them and integrating them. Does that make sense? Okay. I think this is a very important idea that to completely reject the notion that we have a kind of inner essence that, that we must live up to is wrong. And at the same time, to, to, to think that we don't have a kind of deep internal freedom that is not available to all our creations is also wrong. And, okay. Now, in our context, we are going back to these, these attributes. Okay? Um, and I'm going to focus specifically on one attribute and one attribute only because that's what the Altar discusses primarily. And we're going to focus on this, which is love. Desire, longing, affection, as you'll see later on if you keep reading. So, That's this, all one? yeah, it's all one. Why? Wait, Why so can't it be one? About the, like five, but we only talked about the ten attributes. I know. And now you're adding another one. No, it's one of the ten. Yeah. 
We're just going to focus on one of the attributes. Why, why is it a bunch of different things? Love and desire too. But explain the difference. <laughs> I'm asking you, explain to me the difference. Uh, okay. <laughs> I know, first of all, I know that there's different words in it. For Tara's obviously they have to be different. No? Maybe. Also, I'm thinking of the 10 attributes and I'm trying to think which one is all of those. You started off shocked that I said they're all the same. So let's start. Why do you think they're all different? It wasn't because there's different yeah, words. Because they, okay, they all... They all give me different... Right. When I said those words, it evoked a different thing in your mind, right? Yeah. Okay, so to pick two of them and tell me the difference. Okay. I'm going to be so wrong. Love is like a feeling of affection towards someone. Like you care about them. Mm-hmm. Desire is when you want something. It's like... Okay. Would, would I would I say let's just take those two? Let me ask you a question. Yeah, long. Let's take let's take those two. If I love someone, yeah, is that the same thing as feeling compassion for them? No. Asking, do you think it's the same thing? I walk down the street. I see someone um, strip, fall. They're in pain. No, because you could have compassion for someone and not love. So you're agreeing that they're not the same. Yeah. And yet, is not compassion caring about their well-being? Yeah. So love is not simply caring about somebody, yeah, right? Okay, so then let's go back. What's love? Maybe love entails caring. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe someone... But, but, but you know... But what, it, what does it mean? I love a person. Not the same thing as caring. I'm not saying that they maybe don't interact with each other. It could be one it ends up causing the other. There's a lot of interesting things that happen in our psyche. But what... What does it mean to look? Choice personal... Leave choices out of it. Oh. Leave choices. I want it on its own. Don't mix in other stuff. Okay. If you love someone, what does that mean? That... You want them. You want them. What does it mean you want them? Um, like you want to be with them. Mm. Why does that mean? One second. So, so what's that? One second. Like that so would a sin would a synonym for wanting to be as to be desire? Yeah, and desire can also be used in a different way. That's why. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Many things can take on multiple forms and shades. So many things can take on multiple forms and shades. Differences in quantity, in, in quality. And it's helpful to have different words when we want to get at those nuances. It is very bad when those nuances obscure us the fact that we're really just talking about the same thing. Why is love wanting someone? Oh, let me explain. If you love somebody, you have some kinds of feelings of closeness. Love without closeness is just unintelligible. You say, I love somebody, but I don't feel close to them at all. Like that doesn't, that's just nonsensical. Now, closeness takes on many forms. I mean, types of closeness. Okay. Um, I would say, for instance, one of the things that happens is that when you feel close to something, you are pained by its absence, right? So when you feel close to somebody and they're gone, you find that uncomfortable, right? Unpleasant, right? That, that makes sense? Now, you wouldn't experience that unpleasantness if they're there, Right? So longing is longing love. I mean, it's a form love can take, but not all love is going to be longing, right? It's very circumstantial. Um, there's, an, there's other things. For instance, desire. 
right? Desire means that you, you feel an urgency of getting what you're lacking, right? Well, if you feel close to someone, right? But that closeness feels unfulfilled in some sense. The most strongest aspect of that is not the closeness you feel, but the urgency to achieve the closeness you're lacking. And then you feel desire more, right? There's a lot of things that can be part of this. So, for instance, um, I would even say like longing and desire are not the same. Let's say you love somebody, right? And you, it, there's a very big difference between longing them, which is like more missing them, and desire. Like desire, you're, you're more acutely aware of that urgency within yourself, that burning fire to, to, to go and to get, and, right? Whereas longing you, is, almost has a mourning quality. A kind of tragic element, like they're gone and you can't really do anything about it, right? Those feel very different, but their, their underlying is a different, different ways of experiencing the closeness you feel to someone or something else. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. Now, there's different ways of being close, right? The way you're close with your parents is not the way you're close with your children, which is not the way you're close with your siblings, which is not the way you're close with your friend, which is not the way you're close with your spouse, and so there's different flavors of what, you know, what it, because close is not the same. In fact, the way you're close to food is even though you're close to people. Closeness to food, right, is like eating the food and getting, you know, enjoyment from the experience and nourishment, right? That's what closeness to food is, right? Um, whereas when we're close to people, it has some kind of like a social quality, a kind of, we want a sense of, of, of being together. It's a different thing. Closeness in ideas is like, you know, actually possess them, to know them, to understand them, right? Someone says, I love math. What does it mean they love math? They want to go have coffee with a math book? What does it mean? It means if there are mathematical theorems that don't make sense to them, they have a desire to understand them, right? They feel empty when they don't understand them, right? Um, that might take priority over other things, Right? They might think of themselves in terms of their relationship with math, right? Those are all aspects of love, right? But they're directed at like math, which is, you know, maybe makes you weird. Good? So an aspect, an attribute of the soul are these different types of experiences of love. And again, love is love and it's desire and it's all, you know, longing and closeness and familiarity. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it. If you want to just boil it down to one thing, and he was called Ava, and well, Chesed it goes along with the sphere of Chesed. That makes sense. Now, I want you to imagine: Can you imagine a person who does not feel closeness to anyone or anything ever? Can you imagine such a person as a person, or would you feel like they're like failing to be a person? Like there's something like a lack of humanity. They love nothing. No one, they feel no closeness, no it's yearning. Not because they're, they're lying, because they really don't feel that way at all. Sociopath. No, sociopath. They love, they just, yeah. Yeah, they love. I'm just thinking, that's like the closest you can. No, you can't. Like, like, but, but even there, it's like they do. It's just, you know, they, they, their love is kind of like warped and there's a bunch of others, but whatever. I mean, I mean, sociopaths love lots of things. What about parents that are like, like a child to a parent that was not. I'm not saying, I'm about morality right now. I just mean, can you imagine a person that does not experience feelings of closeness to anyone or anything in reality? Oh, to zero. To zero. 
That like just doesn't, like rock. This does not experience feelings of closeness, right? It's not human. It's not a problem, right? Make sense? Okay, so now we're going to compare the spoken word to experiences of love. That's the point. Why is there any sort of comparison? If, I, if I'm starting with love as a defining human experience, then there's no experience because it's insignificant. What, what do spoken words have to do with anything? Okay. I'm going to preempt a little bit. We'll go more into this. But the, the, the basic idea is like this. Yeah? Let's say I feel a deep, deep desire for chocolate cake. Like, 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 you know those cravings that you just, you, you cannot, your, your psyche has been captured by the sense of attachment to chocolate cake and like you can't leave it. Okay, maybe there's something pathetic about that, but okay. What is the relationship between that very human experience, that very, def- again, desire for chocolate cake per se is not human, but desire per se is human, right? And that, one syllable word, cake. It's like the lowest, lowest, lowest level. Does they have any like bear relation one to the other? No. Or you know, would 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 is it matter now if instead of saying I want cake, I said I want an uga, which is cake in Hebrew. Like now it's two syllables. Does that like matter? No. Why? Because the desire, the desire for cake is a human experience. It's not linguistic. It's not language. It's not words. I remember teaching this to, to, to a few years ago. I teach a Tanya Shir Friday night to mostly non-Chabad Hasidim. There's a few Chabad people that show up. Um, we started at the beginning and we're working our way through. We're holding now like uh, chapter 47. Five, six years now. So, like an hour every Friday night. Um, except for when Friday night is a holiday. So not... Um, so we learned this. So one of them said, he said, he said, in Hebrew, I give this year in Hebrew, he said, it's not like you love in French. French is language, right? Do you love in French? Is the experience of love happening in the French language? No. It's like, I don't speak French, I can't love. <laughs> it's like what is one thing to do with the other, right? It's like you know, I can't study. I can't study philosophy because I don't read German. I mean that makes sense because you have to get the ideas from the, the text. And the text back in the day were all written in German, okay? But now imagine someone says like, I can't think philosophically. I can't desire to possess deep wisdom because I don't speak German. <laughs> what is it? The, the fundamental raw human experience of desire has nothing to do with language. Seemingly. And therefore, what, what meaning does the word that comes from your desire have when you're comparing it to your desire? Nothing. Right? It's not empty. It is utterly meaningless. Right? So we went from it's, it costs nothing to it is redundant and empty to it is utterly meaningless. That's now there's more to the text and we'll have to flesh that out, but that that's we'll do that tomorrow. So now So that's asking for Tasha. That's Hashem's words. Which is the 
compared to how Hashem has chosen to experience Himself through the divine attributes of the spheres. He doesn't need us at all. What were you even trying to prove originally? That Hashem remained alone. <laughs> he is alone in his desire whether he says the word cake or not. Right? Imagine a person who is steeped in the desire for chocolate cake, right? And that is like their whole being, right? Whether they utter the word cake or not, does that change anything? No. no. But when you say it, you can become more that, I, that was asked before, and I mentioned that's a weird, interesting thing about, about because of where language comes from in the soul and its feedback, but it's not like an intrinsic part of language. It's like a hack. It's disgusting. It you learn, I mentioned this before. You've learned the first uh, few my marma or not. It's disgusting. <laughs> that, why that works. Why when you say things, you may feel more intensely about them than you did before. I still don't, I don't remember why the author was trying to prove that it remains unchanged. Because we want to understand Hashem's oneness. Because every mitzvah, every mitzvah is, is Hashem is Hashem is one, and every sin is Hashem is not one. And so we need to understand what His oneness is. What is His oneness? So we do somehow have a power over that because by us doing it, a bear that's saying that we. But we're talking about creations. Are we talking about Torah? Are we talking about your soul? Are we talking about the created world? Yes, the way we interact with the created world is either agreeing with the Shams alone or it's not agreeing with the Shams alone. That's true. So you're being an idiot if you think that after doing all of this, that's why don't we get a look? Yeah, well, we have more to, to get there. But. Oh. Thank you.